0: Hi, everybody so today I'm talking with Tony Jack he's a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education we were recently on a panel together and he just blew me away he dropped some serious science on this idea of the privileged poor Tony welcome to the podcast can you tell me your name and what you do my name is Anthony Jack and I'm
1: currently a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of fellow before I begin as an assistant professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm a sociologist by training. And my research focuses, generally speaking, on the, what I like to call the new diversity in higher education. Um, as elite colleges, especially elite colleges, have opened the door to more lower income students, I want to understand not only who they are, um, but where they come from and what are their experiences in college. And how can we do better to serve them once they get in college?
0: So when you started doing this research, what surprised you the most?
1: What surprised me the most was the lack of attention to the diversity within lower income students. Um, When people spoke about lower income, Black, Latino, white, Asian um, students, they spoke about them as like a monolithic group, as if they have the same experience, as if they all come from similar families, similar neighborhoods, similar high schools. And that didn't really work with what I experienced when I entered Amherst College or even my own personal story, because what I noticed at Amherst and then what my research began to outline is that a significant number of our, you know, poorest students actually graduate from boarding day and preparatory high schools like Andover, Deerfield, St. Paul's and Choate rosemary Hall who end up at elite colleges, especially, right? And I started to write about that. And after five times having my paper rejected by journals, um, I was able to successfully Hmm. um, craft a paper that really showed what I was trying to say. And what I was saying is, we've missed out on this diversity. There's a group of lower income students who enter college and they do experience culture shock. They do experience a new world that they that they don't know the rules to. And I call those students the doubly disadvantaged because they're economically disadvantaged and because of structural inequalities like poverty and segregation, they haven't been able to have the opportunity to experience a place like Amherst or Harvard before. And I compare their experiences to students who are equally poor but who got opportunities to go to very, very elite Boarding and private schools, you know, like Hockaday or or, or Milton for high school. And what happens when they get to college, and I call those students the privileged poor because they're economically disadvantaged, yes, but they have experience of things that the top 1% have. They study abroad in high school. They attend classes where they're one of five people reading Shakespeare. They read primary text. They have connections with faculty members that are real and, um, and and more intimate than their peers who go to school where it's one student, it's one teacher for every 30 students as compared to one teacher for every seven.
0: Yeah, tell, tell, tell me a story about um, office hours. I thought that that was fascinating. And
1: to bring, to bring an example of where the doubly disadvantaged and the privileged poor differ in their um, social preparation for college is colleges, because places like Harvard and Yale historically have gotten so many of their students from these private schools and from really, really elite, even you know elite schools across the country, high schools across the country, office hours is something that we take for granted and by we i mean the faculty everybody knows that faculty members hold office hours and a faculty member will walk in on the first day of class and say hey my office hours are from 2 on Tuesday from 2 to 330 but faculty members never say what office hours are they don't offer a definition of what office hours what office hours are to them and what they should mean to students they don 't say office hours are a time that I 'm in my office to answer questions about the course material um, and larger course larger aims of the course and also how this course relates to either industry, current political environment or you know ancient questions of philosophy and so I, and so like we don 't we there's something that is part that we leave part of the hidden curriculum and the example that I want to share is when I talk to a dean at Dean College here in Massachusetts, a, and a college that defines itself as a working class college, because a lot of their students come from working class backgrounds, a dean told, her, told students that my office hours are from Tuesday at 1 to 3.30. And no one came to her office. And when she finally asked why, the students told her, we thought that that was a time for you to do your work, that we couldn't bother you because that was your office hours. And see, there was something that was lost and there was, something, there was something that was lost in translation, right? And this was not something that language per se, like language as in English, Spanish, German, French, Chinese, that was part of the problem. It was a language that is classed because office hours is something that only a privileged few people have exposure to before they set foot on a college campus.
0: Right. So like the privileged poor has exposure to that. So like in doing this, research, what's the prescription? What does this tell us? About what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong.
1: That is always a question I grapple with. And the fact of the matter is what I show in my research is that the privileged poor have more similar experiences integrating into a college to their middle class peers than their lower income peers. And while some policymakers will say, well, that's the prescription then should be is to send more poor students to private schools or make private schools the pathway to open mobility, I disagree with that. What that tells me is that when you give students an equal opportunity you are able to get results that are more similar for those from an advantaged background. And that, to me, is key. Because when you give... Because we what we have in this country is an opportunity gap. And that opportunity gap is not... The opportunity gap comes in many, many fashions. There's a gender opportunity gap, there's a class opportunity gap, and there's a racial opportunity gap. And let alone if you are a Black woman from a lower-income family. Like, let's be 100% honest, right? We're not trying to say, like, people are only one demographic at a time. If you are a lower income and a racial minority, you have to face certain structural hurdles, Like again, like poverty and segregation. As I said at the Brookings Institute panel, if you are a black family that, make a, that makes $100,000 a year, you live in the same type of neighborhood that faces the same type of problems as a white family that makes $30,000 a year. Think about that for a second.
0: Yeah, I've been sharing that. That just blew me away. I've been sharing that with everybody.
1: And think about what that means. Think about what that means that $30,000 equals $100,000 when you add the race to it. What kind of schools are these two types of students going to? What type of neighborhood problems that they have to face? And so that is the kind of, that is the understanding to me is that when we start to chip away at the kind of um, the structural inequalities that hold groups back and give them access, like kind of like inoculation, right? Of and some people say like an inoculation of privilege. What you begin to see is those students can also adopt behaviors that lead to that lead to this, the kind of um, uh, that leads to successful outcomes, like finding a mentor like going to office hours and, and developing relationships with faculty members beyond the material. Um, in my research, I saw that the students whose faculty members and deans knew more uh, or knew more about were more likely to be nominated for awards and prizes and different things like that. So it's not just, it's not just who you know, and it's not just who knows you, it's how well they know you.
0: Right. And for a lot of women and people of color, that's counterintuitive, right? They think that the kind of privileged, smartest, they know everything, but it's simply not true. They know enough to well, ask questions.
1: I, I, I think it's that there's a performance that being successful means that you never made a mistake or being successful means you always have the answer. And the, the funny part is sometimes the most successful people are the people who started their company, their organization, their business, asking a question rather than giving an answer. And so there's part of the narrative of, of mobility that you always have to give the answer to be successful and you always must be poised to do so. It's like there's, there's, there's this falseness of perfection that we don't, that we have. And that's, again, I don't wanna go, I, I, love, I love that speech that, she, that um, the former first lady gave in Chicago to those high school students because she outlined exactly that. Um, and, and I mean, the thing is asking for help is not only smart it's for, it's how you, it's it's rewarding because there's a personal growth to to finding answers. It's like the, the first time you ever go to a library and you work with a librarian on, that, on your first research paper, or when you're looking up something because you want to do something special for your family and you want to research your family tree or, 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 or give a history of your community or your school. Like Those kind of moments of like personal growth and knowing that you have a skill set, because asking questions is not, it's not giving someone a fish. Learning how to ask a question is teaching someone how to fish because if you learn how to ask questions and you get even better at it, you will always be able to get the information that you need, especially when you develop your own strengths at finding answers.
0: Right. And part of that is about getting comfortable with rejection. So you started this conversation by saying when you first started pitching your research, you were rejected by Five. some journals. Tell me Five. about that.
1: Yes. What was that like? It was... You know, it was demoralizing. I mean, um, the American Sociological Review sent it back, and the reviewers actually made fun of the project. Um, One journal was like, I'm not even going to review it at all. This is an automatic reject. And Sociological Forum gave me a home and a chance. And the paper went on to be, you know, it has won two awards, featured in the New York Times twice. And honestly, the one, I can honestly tell you that there was a critical moment That turned the paper around. I sent an email to Prudence Carter, who at the time was a professor at Stanford, who's now the dean of the Ed School at Berkeley. I said, Prudence, I'm really struggling. Can I talk to you about this paper? Now, at this time, Prudence and I had only met once. And I took a, you know, went out on a limb, emailed her, and I was like, I'm really struggling can we talk about this paper and why it keeps getting rejected? She took an hour to talk to me. Mm. And she said, well, Tony, why don't you just say what you just told me in that streamlined way? As soon as I did that, that paper changed so drastically in its clarity, sent it out, and then the rest was history. And so...
0: So what do you think you were trying to do before? You were trying to sound like you know tell me tell me what you think you were trying to do i
1: think in the first paper i was i was trying to make a claim that was bigger than the research project and so i had to bring mm. it i had to bring it uh i had to be more precise in what i was trying to say and so i think the first rejection the first rejection was right they should have rejected that first paper um thinking back they should have rejected even though the reviewers i don't think should have mocked the project as much as they did. They were like literally just being vindictive about, like, you know, because you get questions like, can poor people re- really be privileged? And I would get, like, certain ignorant comments like that. The next versions,
0: right.
1: however, were more honed in um, and more specific. It was just a hurdle that I just did not quite have the language to speak like a sociologist yet. And I had to still learn exactly how to frame a journal article as compared to something like a book chapter where you have more space and you have more freedom to be creative. And once, and when, so when I talked to Prudence that day and kind of understood exactly what she meant by like this, um, the scaffolding that was needed for this particular paper to make it to make it pass review. That's when I kind of like aligned myself with, oh, this is how you write a journal article. She helped me develop my own skill set to do it. And me asking for help in that moment really changed my ability to present my research in a way that sociologists, quote unquote, would get it.
0: Right. So what's your advice to young people who are told no?
1: I sometimes worry when people say, never, never stop and leave it at that. I right. don't think people who have a dream or a passion should ever stop, but you must reflect on the advice that you have been given or the or the crit- criticisms that you that you have gotten from a no. Right, Because it's like, it's, like your first, it's, like, it's like a job. I learned more about my first job, which I didn't like, than I did about – I learned more about myself in the job that I didn't like than the jobs that I do because I realized what my strengths were and where they weren't being used. And so I right. think every no should be taken as a, as, a, as, a, as a moment to learn and a moment to refine. Right. So I will say don't ever give up on a dream but that does not mean to reject
0: criticism. That's powerful, really powerful. I know we've taken up all your time, (laughs) but this was great. I I thank Uh, you so
1: much for for inviting me to be part of this and the work that Girls Who Code does for so many of us. And, And what you do is, even though it has a target population, I hope you all know that it's the families and, the, and it's the families and the communities that benefit.
0: Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Got a question for me? Send us a note at podcast at gmail.com or call in directly via the Anchor app on your phone. Every week, I'll answer questions from listeners like you on topics ranging from women in politics, feminism, education policy, and diversity in tech. So what it's like running a company or just being a mom. I want to hear from you. Send me your questions.